This segment of In the Field Radio is brought to you by Tattoo Shop Radio, Culture Shock, Wopter Music FM, powered by Zeno.fm, with additional monitoring through online radio box. Welcome back to In the Field Radio. I'm Erin Bookie. I'm here with Miss Lady D. What's going on? And we are so excited to have James Sanders in the building. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for having me, Erin and Lady D. What's up? <laughs> No, yes. thank you for taking the time out. We are super excited. I mean, you wear a lot of hats. You're a stylist, the weekend news editor at Complex, and yeah, published author. <laughs> yes, 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 that's true. Just introduce yourself to our listeners who might not be familiar. So, yeah, um, I mean, you pretty much covered everything. James Sanders, James R. Sanders. Uh, fashion editor, celebrity stylist, but these days I've been going by fashion activist, um, basically and social justice writer um, and speaker. What I've been doing is using fashion as a catalyst to bring about change um, in social justice. I really believe that what we wear is a lot deeper than just clothes and uh, fashion and I think that it's history and we can leverage it to bring about change and enlighten people on uh, activism and social justice. And when did you get into writing? So I got into writing when I was really, really young and I started um, writing stories about the people I don't like and they all died horrible deaths. In, in the writing, right? In the writing group. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I mean, some of them. I aspire oh. to that level of petty. No, this oh, yeah. reminded me it, of yes. because the you're dropping the audio book in the spring. And yes. I feel like nobody could have narrated it better than you. Like nobody would have been able to do that. At so all. that you write about the people you don't like, it reminded me of um you ain't gotta lie, Craig. I started uh, hearing it, I was like, oh, <laughs> listen listen okay and that's a true like listen everything you know in the book is a true story quite naturally for you ain't gotta lie craig i switched the names because i was telling one of my closest friends you know her personal business and i did get permission but she said you know all she asked was that i just use another name so um but that's 100 percent true not one detail was changed and you know that's crazy you know these some of these men child hmm. <laughs> hmm. some of these men <laughs> if that's not the truth i don't know what is so the activism is not just based on fashion and art and writing it's it's right using that as a catalyst for all social justice absolutely but specifically race um specifically race and most profoundly race and um it really the idea was birthed 
out of um, the Gucci and Marc Jacobs collections of 2017 and 16, and also Tom Ford, his collection as well. And I was writing for Vogue Italy at the time, and um, a few other publications as well, but most prominently Vogue Italy. And what I saw was a very strong throwback to Foxy Brown, Cleopatra Jones, and all the black exploitation films of that era, the 70s. But no fashion journalist was writing about it. And no fashion journalist was crediting, um, you know, Pam Greer and uh, Tamara Dobson and uh, all of the beautiful uh, Lola Falana, all the beautiful black models and actresses that were creating these trends and making these uh, fashion statements then. And the uh, ladies of the Black Panthers and the men of the Black Panthers and um, Dolomite and what they were doing, uh, Superfly. And, and these designers were getting credited with creating these trends essentially and I found that it was unfair mm. and so what I did was I wrote about it and was told not to and that's when I realized we had a problem and um, so I began to create a niche that married race and fashion which uh, before that had become very uh, or was very unconventional and uh, you wouldn't think the two existed. And um, in the past, you know, fashion was considered to be very diverse. Um, and in reality, fashion is very conservative um, and not necessarily in dress or the traditional sense, but in terms of the people that run the industry. Uh, and, and that distinction is very important. The industry itself is extremely conservative, very traditional and very set in its ways. And that has to be uh, said and it has to be known as well. And so fashion and race became a platform of mine and I've taken it and run with it. It's been important to me to bring awareness to certain things like the fact that um, even today, we were discussing um, the Elsa Schiaparelli collection that just debuted yesterday. Kylie Jenner was sitting front row with a lion on her shoulder, and three of the gowns had lions and tiger heads and things on their shoulder. But if you saw Coming to America in 1990, what, 1990, one, two, or three, you remember the king had a lion on his shoulder. Now mm. people are acting like Scaparelli was the first to create that. But if you're old enough like me, or even if you're just in the culture, you re you know, everybody's seen Coming to America. It's a classic. And even if you haven't, Africans have been doing that for eons. Egyptians have been doing that for eons but you see that reference will never get credited. And so I just feel like I always say in reference to, you know, fashion and race, we need to stop begging for a seat at the table that we built. Right. And that's very important. 
don't you feel like that happens to a lot of black creators and journalists and artists and I, like that that's continuously happened absolutely that, and it's especially absolutely. now i know um the, most recently with tiktok that the black creators were creating the trends and then and then they were becoming viral but the white content creators were being credited with creating the trends 100%. Now, how come there's no uh system of accountability like there's no hey this is theft of this intellectual property like there's no way to prove that so i think that there it's been proven and i think that america has an issue with accountability and I think that that issue with accountability goes back to the discussion of reparations. And I think that we must first understand that reparations is not a new um, discussion. It's not a new point. Um, the first Americans to get reparations were white men. Um, because African slaves were considered income. And so when slaves were freed, white men were given reparations because slaves were considered loss of income. The descendants, oh yes, the descendants of Benjamin Cumberbatch, uh, Dr. Strange, he was given, we've seen as of late, uh, it's been all over the news, $250 million his family was given for loss of cargo, which is loss of slaves. Mm. You know, it's upwards of $250 million. So America has given reparations before. But when it comes to minorities, not just Black people, but minorities as a whole, but for the sake of this conversation, Black people, America has a problem with accountability you know, and taking responsibility. It seems like when you talk about reparations in terms of Black people and minorities, it's not going to be monetary. People think land, money, a farm animal, but it seems like you think it's something else and that we need to accept that and maybe go get our own reparations. I think that one of the biggest problems that we have is allowing other people to tell us what we are worth and what we are owed. That is probably the grossest uh, miscarriage of justice that exists where the conversation of reparations exists today. You know, reparations is, you know, could exist in several different forms. You know, we have issues with the wealth gap between Black America and white America. If all of, you know, um, student loans were wiped out for uh, those who are Black, that would then shrink the racial wealth gap by 98%. That could be a form of reparations. Free education could be a form of reparations. Um, free mortgages could be a form of reparations. Um, free land, of course, could be a form of reparations. It could work in a bunch of different ways, but I think that allowing those who are descendants of the oppressors to decide what those who are descendants of the oppressed are to get could be problematic. 
And I think we really need to start there. Mm. That's a, such a valid point. Yeah. <laughs> like when you when you say it so direct like that, it's like, oh, how could these people be, you know, responsible when they're the ones that need to be held accountable? Right. Right. Like I owe you money. And it's like, but you figure out how much you want to give me back. And you let me right. know. Like, nigga, zero. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. my goodness. See, this is why I'm super excited to interview you, because you're yeah. already blowing my mind. You know, how did you come to the decision to call the book um, Reparation Style and Soul and what that means to you? Child, it took a while, okay? Because listen, <laughs> I was going to call it all kinds of things. Like, I was going to call it the style book. Really dumb titles. Like, I was going to call it, oh, this is the, like, angry book, the burn book of fashion. Like, I wanted to, like, I was, I'm very inspired by, like, hip-hop and, you know, rap and like battle rap too like in street culture so i was like oh like i don't know like I, just random things and so one day i was on the m train leaving from um ridgewood where i was living at the time in queens going to harlem and i was teaching at a paint and pour in harlem teaching art and it just came to me. I wanted a controversial title, but something that I believed in. And I wanted something that would, that people would stop and look through and hopefully be captivated enough to not be able to put down. Um, so in a bookstore, you know, that the title would grab them, the cover would be alluring enough, and then if they picked it up, they want to continue to read enough to say, I gotta go, but I'm gonna take this book with me. And so the title of Reparations came up, but I felt like it needed a little something extra. And I always say with my writing, even journalistically, and I've been you know, a journalist since 2007, professionally. Um, when I was in college, I was still writing uh, professionally uh, for HuffPost. Um, I started as a political correspondent for um, the Huffington Post, and I covered the Obama campaign the first time he ran for president, which was huge for me yeah. um, because it was historic. And um, I always say, even in journalism, which is a straight and narrow newsy kind of style, um, that I always want my writing to be very soulful. Um, so it was important that the word soul be incorporated. And then of course, because fashion is my uh, foundation, I had to have fashion in it, but I remember, you know, Diana Vreeland saying that style is eternal and fashion fades. And so it was important that I spoke to the distinction of the two. Um, and so that's where the style and soul reparations, you know, style and soul came to be. Um, 
and I incorporated all three together. And I knew immediately on that train going from Queens to Harlem that that's what it was going to be. And I just rocked with it, child. <laughs> so what came first, the book or the title? Definitely the book, for sure. <laughs> I had been working on the book for a while and I was coming close to the publication date and that I had set. And I said, what am I going to call this book? <laughs> like, this is getting bad. Like, child, I can't call it like what I was going to call it. And I kept running it past different friends and they were like, no, that's stupid. That's a dub. Don't like, don't call it that. The streets is not going. And I was like, but you supposed to be my friend. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, uh, I don't like that. And they were like, nah, nah, don't call it that. And I was like, okay, well, what? What can I call it? A bullet in a beat down? What if I, like, what? And it was like, nah, don't call it that. Like, what? I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't know that. Shoot. I love the title, and then I love the back cover even more. Thank you. Uh, People like... haven't been paying attention to the back cover. No, really? No! We, were, we were reading it back and forth before giggling. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> this book will make you slap somebody stomp out twerk Twerk. yes listen yo i was like i want to feel all these things and then marinate at the end i was like yeah yes come on the book is so beautiful like it just before you open it what what erin said that she was like i should redo my living room to match with the, the book, book. <laughs> Aaron, you funny. <laughs> I was like, I want this aesthetic around me twenty four seven. But the Aww. thing that I liked about it was that not like you, you embody journalism and like you, you know, the social justice and the fashion, and you managed to put that in a coffee table book with beautiful photos. And then, like, I learned some interesting things. I actually, I want to read one thing from the book, and then I want to talk about it. So you said- Yes, Erin! I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just hyped. Go ahead. Well, this, you said I was writing for Vogue Glamour GQ, which, um, hello, big accomplishments. And even the Huffington Post feeling overcome by this sense of gratefulness. So you were grateful to be writing for these publications, doing doing what you love, but you shaped like legendary fashion editor, Andre Leon Talley, Minus the height, but equal in weight, which I loved that. I thought that was so cute. (laughs) I felt like I had to prove myself to every white person I sat next to at Fashion Week. In editorial meetings, I had to be sure not to hurt Karen's feelings because white tears could lead to black bullets. Like Everybody reads that part. That is Everybody like the first page. But it just shoots you like like it's like such a like you. well <laughs> it, it's a it's a it's almost shoot like, you, Aaron. <laughs> yes. Because it's like a punch to the gut, because you're like you you feel like the gratitude that you felt writing for these publications, but then also like the trepidation that you felt being in these boardrooms in these predominantly predominantly white spaces. Um, like, what was that feeling for you to finally be doing? Oh, that you know that your voice was kind of stifled when you were doing this. That's like what you said earlier that you were being told no. So, how was that feeling of like I'm finally here and I'm gagged? I can't do anything. So. It always felt like I was walking on eggshells. So here's the thing. W.E.B. Du Bois and his classic 
work, probably the book that he's most known for, which is The Soul of Black Folks. He speaks about a double consciousness where Black people are concerned. And the double consciousness is uh, the fact that there is a white America and a Black America that Black people must always be cognizant of when they're out in public right? That means that when you're walking, it, let's say I'm in Bergdorf Goodman's, which is one of the stories in my book, but you didn't hear that from me. <laughs> anyway, um, if I'm in a department store, I must always be aware of the fact that I am Black. Now, white privilege does not uh, white privilege allows a white person the privilege to not have to be aware of their color at any time of the day. Now, double consciousness forces me to be aware of myself and the fact that there are white people around me. So I have to not make sudden movements because as a bigger person shaped like Andre Leon Talley in weight but not in height, I must always be aware that my size is a threat. I don't care how painted the nails are, how many beads I have on that are Yves Saint Laurent, the vintage cross, honey, none of that. None of that met the arched brows. They don't care. It is still a threat. And as a Black man, it is something that I must always be aware of because of the consequences therein. That is the double consciousness. And so even in a boardroom, an editorial meeting, I'm being reminded of that constantly, especially when I am the only one there. And so it means speaking only when you're spoken to. It means having to sometimes be the voice for your people. It means making sure that you're not hurting their feelings, even when you don't say anything. It is a lot of pressure. But now let me be clear. That was then. This is now. You see, that's how I felt. And... This is the awakening. You see, I wrote Reparation Style and Soul, and I've nicknamed it the Big Payback. If I didn't call it Reparations Style and Soul, it would have been called the Big Payback. Because to me, we don't have to feel that way. Because any stereotypes, anything that they're going to say about you, call you, um, accuse you of, you will already be those things anyway. You could be the nicest, soft-spoken person in the world, and you could walk by them and say hello and not say it loud enough, and they'll say that you were being aggressive because you didn't say hello, even if you did and they just didn't hear you. Mm -hmm. So you see the, so you see my, my, my thinking is, which is logic, I feel like, is no matter what, in their mind, you will always be what you will be to 
them, even if it's a good person, because not everybody thinks the same, but you must always take people at face value, even if that face value is a good person or a bad person. So I'm no longer thinking that way, which is why I wrote, I was feeling this way. I was worried about this. I was worried about that. The black bullets may come not giving up my seat or brushing by somebody and they don't like the way I looked at them. So the white tears may bring the black bullets down to the Starbucks, honey. We've seen stranger things these days. So it don't have to happen at a ball at a boardroom. So the control and the intimidation has gone away. But but you see, when you begin to think like that, you must accept the consequences that come with it. And by consequences, I mean when you are no longer controlled, there are like your 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 client becomes uh, met with stubble and the stairs become steeper it becomes harder so that's par for the course it's always going to be harder when you're not as easily controlled and intimidated and that's something that must be accepted so at what point were you able to move past that feeling and to start feeling freer i think when i began to really study my past and my history. Um, I think the very first thing I write in the book is that if you can control someone's mind or past, something along those lines, you can control their future or you can control their entire culture, something along those lines. I think that once I realized who I was and where I came from, that empowered me. I had no idea that my people were really the foundation of fashion and that these trends that we see today in fashion going up and down the runways, we created. And so once I figured that out and began to research more, you know, coming from a journalistic background, I'm an avid researcher and a ferocious reader. And so you're definitely not going to, like, once I get something, I'm going to keep reading and keep digging. The more I began to find out and read about my people, the more thirsty I became for knowledge and history and facts outside of, you know, what I was learning in school um, and in college. And the more I learned, the angrier I got. And it wasn't at other people. It was more so at myself. Angry that I didn't know these things and angry that I let so much time and opportunity go by. Um, but I made it my mission to tell other people and to educate other people so that it wouldn't happen again. Each one, teach one. Do you think your message is being heard? I do. I do think it's being heard. And I think that it is slowly but surely changing perspective for sure. And I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged because 
what I realized is that I'm necessary now more than ever. And what I bring and what I say and how I feel and what I am um, delivering in terms of messaging and perspective is needed. It's very much so needed. So yeah, it's, it's encouraging. It's encouraging because I know I'm helping. Um, if I would have known then what I know now, there wouldn't have been that chapter, that, that first essay mm. in the book. Can you imagine how many Black men and women, girls and boys, who maybe are like style, just icons in the making, but are from maybe the projects or the hood and feel like they don't have the pedigree to apply for that internship at Chanel or Dior or Louis Vuitton because they're not like the girls or guys whose parents sit on Amnesty International's board or Mount Sinai and, you know, because they feel like they don't have that pedigree and they don't know enough about their own history to know that that Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph Lauren used to drop off in trash bags in Harlem and in the Bronx and in Brooklyn, like samples to test out like their latest collections in the 80s and in the 90s to see how the hood was going to respond to their collections and how, you know, people in the hood were going to style Ralph Lauren polo and Tommy and that Pelly Pelly was copied in Mecca and that was just in streetwear. We're not even talking about the Moors and what they did with the Europeans and seasonal dressing and like it, it's just so much. It, it's really kind of like sad. So it, it, it's it's necessary. It's very necessary. Sometimes sure. I see that still uh, happen, like on Twitter, like someone will create clothes and looks and then all of a sudden the same style is like on Fashion Nova or Shein or on somewhere else, whatever. How do at-home designers protect themselves or not get discouraged by stuff like that? So oftentimes they do get discouraged and they don't protect themselves because they don't understand patent law and trademark law and oftentimes Fashion Nova and these bigger brands will get away with it because they know that the small independent designer cannot necessarily afford an attorney or the patenting and trademark licensing fees that go into protecting your ideas and intellectual property. That can be very expensive. It can be very expensive. But I'm going to put you down on some game. There's something called the poor man's copyright. And it still holds true today. As long as your design still has a United States federal um, postal service uh, seal on it, it cannot like it will hold up in a court of law as long as you upload those designs to a youtube and somebody and it has a time mark on it 
you see the internet does not lie. And even if somebody takes it down, it still has a timestamp on it. So like at the end of the day, and that's free to do. So at the end of the day, there are still ways to protect you, pr protect yourself and your ideas. You just must look outside of the box. Um, you should always work towards patenting yourself the correct way, but I'm a firm believer in by any means necessary. And until you can get to point A, definitely do what you have to do. See, and I feel like in the music industry, people have a little bit more of an understanding of the poor man's copyright because of producers and or, like or having, you know, a recorded song that will get stolen. You you like you said, you have that timestamp of when it was created, whether it be in Pro Tools or whatever all the producers using. Um, so I think it's interesting that that is something that can stand up in the fashion industry and is not as widely known. Right. Yeah. Literally, all it is is taking a picture of the sketch or making the design, putting it on a model, putting it on yourself, putting it on your daughter, your cousin, your niece, if it's menswear, your father, your brother, whoever. Upload that picture to YouTube, do a silent video. That's there so you good go. to know. There you go. <laughs> you won't trick me. You may play games, but you won't get James. <laughs> I like it. Talk what? a little bit about what goes into publishing a coffee table book. Because this isn't just, this is not just, you know, pictures. So you you definitely had to procure those. So I, did you do photo shoots with the models? And then obviously like integrating that with your writing. You had to like James's 10 shopping commandments. Like you had to sit down and really like come up with all this stuff and piece it together so yes um so first of all the cover of the book is um the model is she signed to i believe major um that's ebony jackson so she's a new york uh agency signed girl but the gown she's wearing is designed by me um speaking of intellectual property yeah that's actually yeah wow <laughs> duh so yeah that gown is my gown that i designed um, sketched and had made. It was the fabric I flew to India to source myself and um, designed. We were in New Delhi. James, I feel like you were holding out on us when we asked you this. Me too, girl. I forgot. I forgot, child. I, I, child, I forgot, girl. <laughs> honey, I was in the ghettos of New Delhi, honey. It was, I drank the water, girl. When I got back to America, they had to pump my stomach, girl. <laughs> They told me not oh. to drink the water. I thought I was being slick getting a Pepsi from the airport KFC, girl, but I was messed up. Child, I flew over um, Russia and whatnot, but when I got back to America, I was feeling a little funny, girl. Oh, no. But anyway, um, I designed the dress, but every single photo in the book is creative, directed, and styled by me. All of the models are black and the photographers are black and um, hair and makeup is black as well. 
Um, so it took me about three years to do all the photo shoots. Um, some of them have appeared elsewhere in other magazines um, styled by me. And so, because um, one of them is from Vogue, a Black Lives Matter photo shoot that I did. And uh, one of them appeared in a bridal magazine that I did. Um, and then some of them, a lot of them are exclusively for the book. One of the male models is from season 18 of ABC's The Bachelorette. And um, he appeared in a couple of the shoots in the book. Um, and yeah, like it, it took a lot, but a lot of the photographers that I've worked with um, have been longtime collaborators. And um, it was great because a lot of them I've worked with in the past and I've helped either get them like their first editorial or I've worked with them on publishing in magazines and so you know calling on them for a favor it was easy to do and so yeah like it was kind of serendipitous I want to say and um it all worked out I love everything about this book like the way it oh, all came together you. and like the you with the sketches and the designs and the the networking with the you know people you know with the photographers and you know people that you've grown along the way like I think that's just such a beautiful moment to have it all come together and be this amazing book that also has such an impact on the world appreciate it I hope it really does have an impact on the world it's like child. a labor of love and not yeah. just yeah. Felt like yeah and not just a couple of people. So, Lady <laughs> D, you had asked me um, what the hardest part of being a stylist is. And I'll say, outside of the book, because the book was, styling for the book was pretty easy. But um, styling in general, it's hard because if you're, like, doing personal styling, every the hardest part about that is everybody thinks that they can dress. So they'll hire a personal stylist and then they'll tell you what they want to wear. So it's almost like, well, why am I here, sis? Like, what did you hire me for? If you're a celebrity stylist, I worked with um, Guillermo Diaz who played Huck on Scandal. And, um, and um, this was when- Excuse me, Scarface and Half-Baked. That's how we- yeah, that's how we oh, remember. Period, period. And this was when Scandal was huge. So I was dealing with his publicist, his manager, everybody. And I was styling him for Good Morning America, The View, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, the Emmys, the Oscars, the NAACP Image Awards. And there was so much bureaucracy and garments were getting back when they wanted garments to get back. And then come to find out he had a wardrobe budget, but his manager was having me invoice for grooming instead of wardrobe. And so crookedness was going on and I had to quit that job and 
it just was so much. So with celebrity styling, it can be a lot of red tape. You have to really have the patience with it. And then editorial styling, which is magazine work, um, the hardest part about that is, is that even if you're doing the biggest magazines like Vogue or Glamour, there's no money involved. Mm-hmm. You think that there was, but there isn't. That's crazy. Not a dime. See, you look something <laughs> new every day. Yes, you do, child. You do. Do you have a client horror story? Yes, I do, child. That <laughs> one. The one the one at um the one with uh with Guillermo Diaz half baked. Child, I was waiting for paychecks all summer in 2015, and nobody knew. But I was living in Philadelphia at the time. I was, I had just finished my master's in English, and I was styling him from a dorm room in Philadelphia, and they thought I lived in New York because at the time, at now, so now I do live in New York. I've been living in New York for several years now, but at the time, child, I was living in Philadelphia. I had my little Google voice, New York number. Uh, <laughs> so I let people think I lived in New York, honey. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was how I was scamming the people, honey. Oh, and my so, goodness. but child, me in that dorm room, honey, it was so funny. I had like over $50,000 worth of suits and, and Swarovski crystals and jewelry and Rolexes and like shoes and all that because it was the top show. And I was shipping everything back and forth to Beverly Hills. And he was calling me like sometimes, I think I still have his number. I don't know if it changed or whatever, but we had gotten so cool. But unfortunately, like his manager, she was awful. And mm -hmm. um, she was like telling me, never call ABC, never call ABC. But after the first month of me not getting paid, I was like, I'm going to hit the call ABC because I want to know where my money is, child. And like, that's when they were like, oh, well, he had a wardrobe budget. And I said, but she told me all he had was a grooming budget. And, and they were like, no, he has a wardrobe budget. You're James Sanders, the groomer. I said, no, I'm the wardrobe stylist. And they said, oh, no, we've been giving his wardrobe budget to such and such. I said, that's his manager. Oh. I'm his wardrobe stylist. So, mm, so y'all know what happened. And she telling you not to call them. The exact people that that's you need why. to call. That's why. Idiot. Who else so, have child, you styled? I was, one of the cast members from Pretty Little Liars, um, her name is Natalie Hall, and uh, she played one of the girl's evil sisters. One of the girls from True Blood, uh, one of the girls from Destiny's Child, the original four, for an appearance on The Wendy Williams Show, Montel Williams, for all those late night commercials you saw, um, I did the first campaign for Marvel's Luke Cage on Netflix before That's it got huge. canceled. Um, I did the first campaign for Queen Sugar 
on the Oprah Winfrey Network, Nicholas Ash, that appeared on Harper's Bazaar. Alonzo Arnold, there are some, uh, Jonathan Sadowski, he did a show, Young and Hungry, on ABC Family before that network got canceled. Riley um, Christian, most recently, I did a campaign for ABC's The Bachelorette last year. That was cute. Somewhat. Oh, my goodness. So, so we're ABC. You and ABC's. <laughs> yeah, nah. now we know to avoid ABC. <laughs> the list goes on. But check out my website, jamesrsanders.com. And you'll see some of the names under celebrity. Oh, you know what I wanted to ask you too before we get super far off the topic is talk about your book reception because it looks so amazing. That venue you should have been there. You was invited. That's a fact. <laughs> it was COVID times. Well, the event the event was incredible. Um, it happened at Skylark, um, which was at West 39th Street, um, a little bit off of Times Square. And I was just amazed, like the amount of people that showed up. We were expecting 35, 65 people showed up. And it was on a Monday. So the fact that that many people showed up on a Monday, the incredible sponsors, Olaplex, Shea Moisture, Heaven's Saki slash Heaven's Sake. Let's see, Danessa Myricks, um, uh, DeFeel Hair Company, um, the Candle Company, Alpha Factory. I always mispronounce them. Like such amazing people, uh, florals by Marine Jean Baptiste, who did Oprah Winfrey, uh, who's Oprah's florist. Like just amazing, amazing installations. And it was an incredible situation. I couldn't believe that it went off without a hitch. So many people were there and we had Variety there, um, TMZ was there, um, the New York Post was there, um, I, I just, Hip Hop Basement, um, The Source, everybody just, it just was incredible. And like, I didn't think, cause I knew I was respected, but I didn't think I was liked like mm. that. So that was nice. Aww. You know, it was cute to be like. Yay. I knew I was respected. I didn't think I was liked like that. So that was nice. That's Those beautiful. Look unbelievable from that venue, too. <laughs> like it had I such know. a gorgeous aesthetic. I know. Yes. <laughs> I know I picked it. <laughs> <laughs> we had an open bar, gourmet, light bites. It just was really beautiful so yeah do you think you're gonna go on a book tour oh definitely um miami atlanta los angeles chicago and hopefully essence music festival we are number one in essence um my book is a number one essence magazine um book 
which is incredible. Congratulations. In essence, thank you. I can't believe that, child. We believe yes. it. I believe yes. it. Yes, thank you. So I'm really hoping to set some amazing things up. Um, in February, I really want to you know, for Black History Month, try to go big. And then obviously for Juneteenth, I really want to do some big things as well. You'll definitely have to keep us posted so we can keep our listeners posted. So we can go. Yeah, that too. (laughs) That too. I mean, But I I want our listeners to go too. (laughs) Yes. So what can we expect next? I feel like you probably have something like... Yes, so so rep reparations style and soul is um as you know in the spring um the book itself is coming to audio there will be a few additional essays added um and yes and in february we are launching the merch collection a very small capsule collection of sweatshirts um and tees that are inspired by 80s and 90s streetwear culture. Oh, um, I love it already. Yes. Um, I'm actually doing the photo shoot this week, weekend, um, styling the photo shoot this weekend um, to go with that. And um, the last thing is uh, Reparation Style and Soul will be uh, transitioning into a monthly column, actually, that people can subscribe to um, as well through Subtech and Substack, excuse me, um, that can uh, be delivered to their inbox monthly, once a month. And um, we'll have fun ideas and uh, conversation topics and uh, points about like, does buying black, uh, is there a correlation um, between buying black and interracial dating and, um, you know, small handbags? Does it make you uh, kind of... Uh, get rid of the baggage, emotional baggage that you have because with smaller bags, you have to carry less. And so what does that do mentally when you can't bring all of your stuff with you? Stress me out. It makes me get a second bag and now I have two bags. (laughs) Stuff everything in there. (laughs) So with a few styling suggestions as well at the bottom. So curated and styled by James of course so yeah it's gonna be fun like what what should people stop doing a trend or trends oh my goodness maybe Um, before we go I'm so sick and tired of neon I'm so sick and tired of neon but honestly (laughs) it Honestly, in the book, I talk about trends in general, and I think, I'm glad you brought that up, Erin, because I always talk about fashion like friends, and that's what I write in the book. You know, your friends are, think of your friends like your essentials, right? And so you don't, you know, I'm a firm believer in like no new friends 
you want to be careful about how you curate your circle, right? And so when you think about trends, that new, exciting, shiny thing that everybody else is going up for, right? You want to be careful about how you incorporate that into your circle because one bad trend can spoil the sanctity of what you have going on. Even if that trend is popular, it may be good for them. That don't mean it's going to be good for you, baby. So think very clearly before you put that thing in your closet. It may stand out like a sore thumb. So like neon, (laughs) like neon, honey. Okay. That, Can I that read the commandment? May not work for you. Come on, girl. Come I had, on. I, I, had, I had bookmarked the uh, James's 10 shopping commandments. And number one is watch out for trend items. They're some timey like people. Oh. Don't you don't you hate it when someone brings a new friend to the group and they don't mesh with anyone? An outsider can mess up the vibe real quick. Think of trend items like that. If you know who you are, your wardrobe should be consistent with everything serving a purpose. If the trend item doesn't look like it at least fits in, don't buy it. Did you get what you need, Lady D? Mm-hmm. There you go. Let the church say amen. Amen. There you go. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know? Anybody who's listening to know this, never allow anyone to make you feel like you don't belong in a space that you got yourself to. If you got yourself there, you belong there. This industry, fashion, entertainment, music, and media, all three of them, maybe it was four, I don't remember, are based on intimidation and power. Power only works if there are those without it. Those without it, you want it. Those who want it are intimidated by it. Do not allow yourself to be one of those people. Realize who you are and the fact that you got yourself there. That is your power. Your hustle is your power. Understand who you are and never forget that. If you do that, you will never be defeated. Real gangsters move in silence and violence. Take it from your highness so many gems all right let our listeners know where they can find you james r sanders one word on twitter and instagram the website is exactly the same thing james r sanders.com thank you all so much thank Thank you you for taking the time out yes i appreciate you Are you thinking about starting your own podcast? Well, you can stop overthinking it because the hardest part is actually getting started. And that's where Buzzsprout comes in. Buzzsprout makes it easy to launch your podcast and has already helped over 100,000 people just like you start and grow their own podcast. With Buzzsprout, you can have your show listed on all major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. You'll get a great looking podcast website, audio players you can embed on other websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Stop waiting. Start your own podcast today and get a $20 Amazon gift card. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes below. This lets Buzzsprout know we sent you, and it helps support our show.